This is God's word. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us and by the Spirit, uh, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out from the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, <clears throat> what, what I'm going to try and do today is uh, give you three tests to know if you are a child of God. Um, we saw last week, didn't we, you know, this kind of love, behold what love, this sort of monumental verse, chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Remember that? Because that's what we are. But that kind of begs the question, anyway, when we hear of this, this amazing love that we've been thinking about over the last few weeks through this series, how do we know, how do we know we're children of God? When we examine ourselves, when we look at ourselves, these things about love and being a child of God is great, but how do we know they apply to us? And so what we're going to look at today is three tests to know whether you or I are a child of God. And if you listen to these tests and you, you hear what my explanation, as the scriptures put it, that will provide you confidence if indeed you are a child of God. So it should increase your confidence right, before God. And that's um, a real blessing. You'll see why later. But these tests, if applied correctly, will also expose any weaknesses in your life and my life, any areas that God desires to work in. So let's look at those three tests um, as we go through the text. 
Um, the three tests are this. Uh, the life of a child of God, number one, should consist of love and not hate. That's the first test. Number two, it should consist of integrity, not hypocrisy. And number three, it should consist of truth and not error. Okay? Love and not hate. This is how a child of God should be characterized, love and not hate. And it might sound a bit obvious that someone who belongs to a religion should be a loving person, but it's actually uh, perhaps not that obvious, and, and John has a very specific shape of love in mind. Look down at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It's the shape of love that John has in mind here. And so that's how we know if we are a child of God, when we look and see what it took for God to lavish his love upon us. When we look back to a concrete moment in history when Jesus died on the cross, when the Son of God gave his life voluntarily for his people, when he laid it down of his own accord. We saw this, didn't we, um, a couple of months ago in our series through the book of Philippians. Um, Jesus, although he was God, remember, didn't cling to his position, but he made himself nothing. He took on the, the position of a servant and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, we're reminded in the gospel, gave sacrificially. He put the needs of his own people before himself. And so a child of God, according to John, will look at the self-giving work of Christ and they will be humbled and they will be filled with thanks and they will be stirred. But John goes further. He connects the dots because a child of God it's characterized by love and not hate. They look at what Christ has done for us and they receive it by faith, but they respond by laying down their lives, it says, for the brothers. The brothers, by the way, in this context, um, means fellow members of the community of faith, fellow believers in Jesus, both men and women. And what we're saying is a child of God sees the shape of God's love for them, in the cross, and they are stirred to follow suit. So the love of God is, is, is transformative. It has an effect on the life of the believer. It changes you. It melts your heart. And so children of God, they love like they have been loved. They love like Christ loved. And they show their love to the brothers and sisters in the community of faith. They lay down their lives for one another, just as Jesus did. They give themselves up for one another, just as Jesus did. Their love is sacrificial. It is costly, just as Jesus' love was. They demonstrate their love practically. They put others before themselves. It hits them in the pocket. It hits them in their calendar. But according to verse 17, the kind of love that is demonstrated by a child of God is an open-hearted love to other believers. As a church, to understand this practically, we need to understand what it means by brothers. We've already thought about, about that a few moments ago. But we need to ask ourselves, to whom are we to show this kind of love? Who are we to demonstrate this practical, observable love that you can experience and receive from one another? As we've 
Just thought brothers means fellow believers, both men and women, fellow children of God. But are we to choose other Christians at random and show them extraordinary acts of service? Are we to relate to all Christians like this, all believers in Jesus? Especially nowadays, more so than in the first century, we are much more connected as a, a global people. Um, it is possible for us to know and, and connect with people all over the world in ways that they could never even think of in the first century when this letter was written. So are we to love all people in this way or, or, or just a few? How are, we to, how are we to use our finite resources and our finite time to love all of the brothers? Well, this text gives us a bit of a, an idea. Um, the New Testament letters in general give us a bit of an idea. Um, let me just say this. When it comes to showing Christian love, the primary context of brothers in this situation is fellow members of the same local church. That is the primary context where love is to be demonstrated and shown and expressed and received. Yes, there are things in this letter that apply to all Christians everywhere. But the original audience, the original recipient of this letter was a church or a group of churches. That's the same for a lot of the New Testament letters. They were written to a specific group of people, not to all people in general. This is where we get our one another's from, this phrase that, that often appears uh, in context with local church membership, love one another, care for one another, serve one another. We see even in verse 23, we're to love one another just as he commanded us. Who is this one another but fellow members, fellow believers in the local church? This is the primary place where Christians are to live out their faith, to serve, to use their gifts. It's the most clear, the most obvious, perhaps the most powerful place for that to happen. It's where you know the needs of people very specifically and personally. It's where you live nearby in order to be able to help and provide and care. It's where we live lives together in ways that we don't live with other Christians in other parts of the world. So that's the primary place where we show this love for one another. But there is a second level of demonstrating love at the sort of town, the city level, if you like, and maybe even a third level after that, remote parts across the globe. And it's not that we should, by the way, pick one level or another, or play one level off of another, you know, saying we will we'll love Christians in a different country on the other side of the globe, but yet we won't care for the people in our own local church. What I, what I think is best to do in this situation is to think in terms of concentric circles. Think in terms of fellow members of your local church first, loving them, caring for them, the primary, the most obvious and clear place, and then other churches in our area, and aside from that, further out still, other churches across the globe. In fact, I would argue that the best way of serving Christians in a different country on another side of the planet is by helping them to plant churches that are local and can serve their people and so on and so forth. The point is this, the point as to why it's local church first is that Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
The point is that the world will see how we love one another. They will know if you or I and we are our children of God by the way that we, in this room, love one another. It assumes, of course, that we are mixing, connecting with the world, with those outside of our church. And we've mentioned in our prayers already the Christmas carol service on the 17th of December, and we're praying, I'm praying, for 50 people, which means that every single chair in here, plus more, will be filled. But they're not going to come, by the way, unless you invite them. And we all have a role to play in that, right? But when those outside the church come in and join us, will they see our love for one another in the way that Jesus teaches? When we run our first CAP Life Skills in February and we're serving as a church, will the clients that come along see our love for one another? When we integrate with other services and, and volunteering, maybe even in this centre here, will they see our love for one another? I want us at Foundation Church to be have a reputation of love, discernible, actual love. And if we can understand this, then we understand the first test. A child of God is characterized by love and not hate. But before moving on, um, we shouldn't expect this to be easy. Sometimes we can think to ourselves that there's no law against love, no one's going to reject that or turn that down and practical love and help and care and all that sort of stuff. But we saw in the first few verses this interesting reference. Uh, look down at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. How can the world hate us when we're trying to show acts of love? But John says, don't be surprised, as in when it happens, because love stirs up hate. It always does. It always did. It's as old as the hills. John points back to this situation with Cain and Abel. He, they're the two sons of the first parents, Adam and Eve. And the story goes in Genesis 4 that Cain kills his brother Abel because Abel's offering was accepted by God, but Cain's own offering was not accepted. And so whether it was jealousy or hatred or, or, or combination of all these things, he killed him. It said that Abel's deeds were righteous. He was behaving like a child of God. But Cain's deeds were evil. He hated his brother and he murdered him. It doesn't make any sense. Other than the fact that love stirs up hate. Darkness and light can't mix. And John says, when that happens... And it will. Don't be surprised. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 14, we're not of this world. This is two different systems entirely clashing. Expect some friction. We've already passed from death to life. So expect some resentment and opposition. That's why we need to be wise and careful in how we go about our work. So a child of God, first of all, is characterized by love and not hate. There is no place for hate in the child of God, even if it's just hate for one person. There's no place for hate. Okay, so the second test in the life of a child of God, there is to be integrity and not hypocrisy. And it's kind of a development of the first point. You'll see there's a bit of overlap as we go through. 
Verse 18, <clears throat> John says, Do not love, or let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See that? Talk is pretty easy, isn't it? Talk is cheap, some people say. And especially, it could be pretty easy for a preacher, for me to stand up and start instructing you on love. But yet if I and we are talking about love every Sunday and yet not doing love, then we lack integrity. We're hypocrites, aren't we? Just talking about it and not doing it. We might have the right words, but do our words have integrity? Do they confirm the truth of our words? Maybe we even do deeds that look good on the surface, but do we love in truth? See that phrase at the end of verse 18, love in truth. That is, do we love with sincerity? Do we love with integrity? Or do we just show love and talk about love when people are watching? And when they turn their backs, we just go back to being selfish again. So here's the test in verse 17. When we see a brother in need, what do you do? Let's think about the context of the local church primarily. When you see a brother or sister in need, what do you do? Do you close your heart, even though you have an opportunity to help? Or do you do something about it? Do you meet the need? Do you just love in word and say, there, there, bless you in the name of Jesus? Or do you love in truth and say, bless you in the name of Jesus and let me serve you, let me help you, let me get alongside you? Do we act in integrity or do we act in hypocrisy? Because in verse 19, this is how we know we're of the truth. This is how we know we're living in integrity. We reassure our hearts before God. Reassure can also be understood to be persuade or convince. We convince our hearts before God if we're loving in integrity. Does your heart condemn you for failing to love with integrity or does it commend you for loving with integrity? The Greek in, in these verses is really quite difficult. Um, some people see these verses as a bit of an aside, a bit of a sort of side issue talking about assurance. But actually, I think we can understand it as being integral to the entire passage. You see, verses 19 and 20 are not intended to encourage and inspire. Verses 19 and 20 are intended as a warning. By this, we shall know we're of the truth. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. This is intended to be a warning. What we're saying here, what we're reading here, is that at the moment when you choose to close your heart and your hand towards a fellow believer in need, you are not acting like a child of God. You're acting like a hypocrite and not with integrity. You may be able to hide your motives from other people, but it says God knows everything, meaning he sees exactly what is going on in your heart. So you can see these verses are not intended primarily as a comfort, but as a warning. A child of God loves with integrity and not with hypocrisy. 
But John then shows us the flip side. He gives us the other side to the test. If our hearts do not condemn us, he says in verse 21, that is, if our hearts commend us, then he says we have confidence before God. If you, as a child of God, are acting with integrity, you will have and develop confidence before God. That's what it's saying. That is, in his presence, as a child with their father, it will confirm your deep and profound relationship with God your Father. If you have an open-hearted response to fellow believers, if you show practical and sacrificial love and action, John says you will have confidence because what you're doing is keeping his commands. You're doing what pleases your Father. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, the good works that you do, the acts of loving kindness that you share towards one another, when they're done in integrity, is a sign of God living, abiding in you. It's a sign that you're a child of God. It's a sign that the Spirit is working in you. And so that should bring you a lot of confidence when you do works of service for fellow brothers and sisters. Sometimes we think that love is either on or off, like a, a light switch that you can just flick on or turn off. Not one of the fancy ones you can, you can fade in and out, you know, but just a, on. We think that love is like that. We either think about love or hate. It's either one or the other. And certainly in verses 11 to 15, there's a stark contrast, isn't there, between Cain and Abel and love and hatred. But in the life of the believer, it's not as simple as just on or off. In fact, in our honest moments, maybe I'm speaking more for myself, where we just don't often feel all that loving towards believers. It's a lot easier for us to turn and do good to a believer on the other side of the world than it is to show practical love to a fellow church member who lives down the road. Sometimes we fear we just don't have enough love in our hearts to live the kind of life that John is holding out for us here in these verses. But as I was saying, for the believer, love is not a light switch. It's more like a thermostat. It has different degrees. It can go up and down. It can range from cold through warm to scorching hot, depending on how it's set. I quoted a commentator, David Jackman, last week, and he said something also regarding this passage that I'm going to share this week as well. He says, The more we are open to receive it, the more Christ's love will flood into our lives and overflow to other people. The more we're open to receive it, the more Christ's love will flood into our lives and overflow to others. See, our love is not static. It's not on or off. We can receive lots of it or we can choose to shut our hearts and, and just receive a drip. The amount of love that we have for others is directly proportional to the love that we see and receive from Jesus. The more we look at him, the more we see in him truth, the more we see in him beauty, the more we exclaim, behold, what love. 
the more love we will show for one another. So we've seen that the life of a child of God should consist of integrity and not hypocrisy. It should consist of love and not hate. And finally, the third test, a child of God, the life of a child of God, is to consist of truth and not error. And we find this in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. We've already found out that the child of God, we've seen this a few times already over the last few weeks, has the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 18 of chapter 3. He's also called the Spirit of Truth in verse 6 of chapter 4. And the idea is that the child of God can know the truth. He or she can distinguish the truth from error. Why is this such a big issue? Why is this a mark or a, a, you know, a test, if you like, of a child of God? Well, uh, in our own day, it's pretty obvious um, that there are lots of different versions of the truth for us to choose from. There are lots of different so-called spirits out there that, that, that teach the truth, in inverted commas. Don't forget, and um, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the background situation in the churches that this letter was originally written to was of a, a number of false teachers within those churches who had um, been teaching uh, a different or a wrong sort of gospel message, and they had eventually gone out from the church. They used to be a part of it, but they had left. You see they're even called false prophets down there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Their basic teaching is that they denied that Jesus is the Christ. They rejected the apostolic message of the, doctrine, of, of the gospel of Jesus, Instead, they they styled themselves as progressives. They were demonstrating new truths. They were no doubt attempting to use a lot of intellectual talk to confuse the church or distract them or pull them away from the truth of Jesus. They were claiming to be speaking from God, fresh revelations from the Spirit. So the question is, how does a child of God know what is true and what is false? What should we listen to? And so here's the test. In verse 2, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Pretty simple. Um, But there's actually quite a lot packed into that little phrase. Um, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. What we're saying when we confess that, we say we believe that, is that Jesus, the man of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph the carpenter, Jesus who did good works and amazing signs and was eventually tried and killed by the Romans, Jesus who came alive on the third day and was seen by hundreds of people, that Jesus is also the Christ. That is, he is the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, the chosen one of God who was prophesied and predicted to be bringing world peace, to crush the enemies by his substitutionary death. And he's also God in the flesh, that is God incarnate. And a spirit that teaches that, a teacher that teaches that, is from God, says John. That's how you know, it's truth. But this is in opposition to a spirit or a teacher or anything else that denies any one of those points, that says that Jesus is not the Christ, or that Christ is not God in the flesh, or that Jesus is not God, etc. This, according to John, is the most basic truth 
a child of God should know. You cannot deny that little phrase and be a child of God. Of course, there is much more, as we've been learning in the Catechism, there's much more to the Christian faith, there's more substance, but it's very core, it's very heart to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, is the, is the most basic truth a child of God should know. And the point is this, if you can say these things, if you believe them to be fully true for yourself, or true for everybody, in fact, if you receive these truths deeply, and not just trot them out from your mouth, but receive them deeply into your inner being, then this is a sign, according to John, that the Spirit of God is in you. As Paul puts it elsewhere, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So I wonder about you. Can you, can you say this without reservation? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Even just our little exposition of that phrase shows that it's not a small thing to confess that. Can you say this? Can you mean this? Do you know that this is profoundly true? If that is the case, then you are saying that because the Holy Spirit is in you. Because you are a child of God. Think of the confidence this brings you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. There's a, of course, a record store called HMV. Does anyone know what HMV stands for? His master's voice, yeah. And um, there's not that many stores left, and they're pretty much a sort of online store just now. Um, but sometimes when you go and see their store, um, there's a little sort of graphic, there's a little dog sat next to the gramophone. And in the original sort of HMV uh, graphic, it was a little Jack Russell sat next to the gramophone with his head sort of cocked to one side. And he was listening through the gramophone uh, to his master's voice playing on the record, on the gramophone record. And the point is that the dog was able to hear his master's voice to recognize it. And so John here is training believers to recognize his master's voice, the spirit of truth, to recognize that among all the clanging and shouting and advertising of other different versions of the truth that are out there. And so how about you? Do you recognize the truth of God? Can you hear your master's voice? Do you recognize the message of the gospel of Jesus as, as told by the apostles? Those who heard and saw with their eyes and touched with their hands that which they proclaimed to us. That's how John, remember, starts the letter. If you recognize that truth of God, then you know that you're a child of God. Do these truths swell your heart when you hear them? Do you, do you love to hear and sing and confess these rock-solid truths of the faith? So they're the three tests. We've seen, first of all, that the life of a child of God consists of love and not hate. We've seen that the life of a child of God consists of integrity and not hypocrisy. And thirdly, we've seen the life of a child of God is about truth and not error. 
And so when you apply these three tests to your lives, what is your conclusion? Are they present in your life? Or are they absent? If they are there, <clears throat> on balance, then that is cause for you to have great confidence because they are signs that you are a child of God. This wouldn't happen unless the Spirit of God is in you. And so allow that confidence, if that is you, if you, if you look at those things and you say, yeah, to the glory of God, those things are present in my heart. Allow that to, to, to give you confidence, allow that to prompt you to ask for even more, even more confidence. Ask for even more growth. Ask that those things will become more and more clear in your life as you grow more and more. More love, more integrity, more truth. We're never done growing until Christ returns. But maybe when you hear these three tests, you don't get a sense of confidence and, and, and thankfulness. Perhaps instead you have a sense that you've, you've failed. Rather than three tests, these to you sound like three judgments on your life. Maybe you've been trying, but you just don't love as you know you should. Maybe you lack that integrity that only God can see in your heart. Maybe you have a grip, your grip rather, on the truth is a bit shaky. If that's you, if these sound more like judgments than tests, then may I remind you what John says earlier in the letter. My little children, he said, I'm writing to you so that you know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What he's saying is that for you and I, Jesus, right now, is our advocate. That is, he is speaking to God the Father on your behalf. He is saying to him, his righteousness, his own personal perfect record has been given to you, child of God. And he is reminding his father of this. And God therefore sees you with the righteousness of his son. If you hear these three tests and you think they are three judgments to you, grace is available. John says again elsewhere, if we confess our sins and our failures and our shortcomings, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not despair. Allow his love to meet you. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, no, I haven't just failed the tests. They are absent altogether. They do not characterize my life at all. You know that they do not apply to you in the way that the Bible understands it. When you listen to these things, it occurs to you, you are not a child of God by this assessment. But the good news of the gospel is that that way to God is open for everybody. If you know that you don't match up as none of us do, left to our own devices, then the gospel message teaches you can come to Christ you can trust him as your advocate. He will be for you your perfect righteousness. And when you believe that he is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin, you right 
now, right there and then, become a child of God with all the privileges of the kingdom. In a few moments, we're going to sing a song containing some very dangerous words. The song is called I Surrender. And <clears throat> we've put it here in the service just to allow us to respond. Uh, it's a song that allows us to ask for more of God. It's a statement that we can sing, if you want to, to say, here I am. I'm hungry. I want more of you. Let me know your way. These are dangerous words. And if you want to use them yourself to respond to what we've been thinking um, and praying, then we'll do that in a few moments. But before we do that, let's uh, maybe just stand just now. How about that? And then we can pray together as we close to sing. Father God, would you help us to be open to these tests? Would you help us to apply them to ourselves, no matter where we stand before you, the seasoned believer, the new believer, or someone who doesn't yet believe at all? Would you search us because you know us? Would you show us where we are going well so we may have confidence? Would you show us where we must submit ourselves afresh, where we are not honouring you? Would you give us your Holy Spirit that we may be made to be more like Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.